Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. College-age adults tend to be stereotyped as being a pretty horny bunch. If you look at a lot of the popular media narratives and depictions, college students are often portrayed as having a lot of casual sex with a lot of different people. But are college students today really having more sex than generations past? That's what we're going to be exploring in this show. We're going to talk about what college student sex lives really look like today. How many of them are sexually active and hooking up? What do their reasons for having and not having sex look like? How is the sex that they're having changing? And is it being influenced by pornography? And what do college students today really need to know about navigating and cultivating healthy sexual and romantic relationships? I am joined by Dr. Nicole McNichols, an associate teaching professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington. Nicole's course, The Diversity of Human Sexuality, is the largest and most popular course in the university's history, with 4,000 enrolled students each year. Nicole is the co-author of the textbook, Human Sexuality in a Diverse Society, and she has a popular TED Talk titled, Students on Top, A Vision for 21st Century Sex Education. This is going to be a fun and informative conversation, so stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASECT sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesin can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Permesin offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at Promescent.com, where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. Hi, Nicole, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into being a sex educator. So what is it that drew you to this area? Well, I am a social psychologist by training, and I always was a undergraduate TA for the human sexuality professor who had taught the class for about 30 years before I took it over. And I absolutely always loved TAing for her course, and I would help her with some of her research and kind of became 
a primary part of my doctoral research and education. And then I took, you know, a few years off to do some consulting work and I came back into academia. I'm one of those few people who left and then came back because I really missed it. And I missed the students and I really missed the energy of the campus. And Lois, who was the previous instructor, she broke her leg about two weeks before the beginning of the quarter. And there were about 350 students enrolled and the whole department panicked. And I was a new faculty member looking to kind of get my footing. And so I raised my hand. Uh, I tell people it's a little bit like in the Hunger Games when, you know, Jennifer Lawrence comes running forward saying, I will be tribute. <laughs> and because nobody wanted to teach this course. I mean, it was just, it had such a history for being, you know, just such a, a tough course to teach because it's such a personal matter and because a lot of the topics are so highly sensitive. So I taught the course that quarter and I was simultaneously teaching the course, but just reading absolutely every academic journal article I could on the topic. And I just absolutely loved it. And then Lois decided to retire and I was lucky enough to take over the course and it just kind of became my passion. So, you know, I joke to people that I didn't really grow up wanting to be a sex professor. <laughs> it wasn't something that I necessarily envisioned doing, but it's absolutely what I feel like I'm meant to do. And as you know, there's no federally mandated sex education in the United States. And that means that only about 34 states have sex education. And Washington state did not have it until about fall of last year. So most of my students are coming in knowing absolutely nothing about sex. And so I really wanted to make the class available to anyone who is interested in it. And so essentially what happened is the course, you know, I grew it quickly to about 700 students, which was basically filling the entire auditorium of the biggest classroom that we have on campus. And then during COVID, when everything went back online, we realized we were no longer limited by the size of the classroom. All of a sudden now we were online and we could just kind of open it. So we just sort of kept increasing enrollment. So now the class is taught to 1,200 students three times a year and then 400 more students over the summer. So yeah, so it's a lot of students that I really get to interact with and yeah, it's just been a really, really kind of magical experience. It's really had kind of a profound impact on my goals, my dreams, who I am, and I enjoy it. Well, I love all of that. Thank you for sharing that story. And I appreciate that you make this course available to so many students because you make such an important point that so many of us just never get sex ed prior to college. And unfortunately, you know, many people never go to college and so they never even have that opportunity. And even if you do go to college, it's not necessarily a guarantee that there's going to be a sex course on the books, but at least in the case of students who are attending your school, it is a backstop for a lot of those students who just never learned what they needed to know about sex. And I think you also make a really important point that teaching human sexuality courses is hard. Every word that comes out of your mouth is a potential landmine, a potential opportunity to offend someone, to trigger someone. There are just so many things that you have to take into account. And so I understand why there's a lot of hesitance around teaching these courses, but they are 
so, so important. And I think that's also part of the reason why we need to teach people how to teach about sex, because I think many people just stay away from it because it's such a fraught topic. And if you don't have any resources, you're not equipped to do it, it can just seem too daunting. I mean, I know when I taught my first human sexuality course, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was figuring it out as I went <laughs> along. And it was a many year process to refine that course and get it just right. And even then, you're still constantly changing because the language around sexuality and gender is always constantly evolving. So you really have to stay on top of things if you want to continue to be a really good educator in this particular area. Absolutely. You have to be on top of things. You have to be aware of all the research, but you also have to really be humble because this is an area where I don't really feel that the traditional construct of the professor who knows all the information and is just the expert is, you know, imparting knowledge onto a student who is just there to absorb what you say. I don't think that model really works when teaching a class like this. I think it has to be something that's much more collaborative, where you're willing to make yourself vulnerable and willing to learn from your students because you just have to face the fact that a lot of these students have their finger on the pulse of some of these topics that is just simply going to run deeper than what you've encountered. And they're going to be at the forefront. They're going to be really kind of what's bringing in these new ideas. And, and that's the other thing about human sexuality is that it draws from social psychology, it draws from clinical psychology, it draws from biology, it draws from gender studies. So when you have students who are, you know, doing work or majoring or coming from all of those different disciplines, your job is to leverage that information and to create an environment where you're inviting them to contribute and not making them feel like their voices don't deserve to be heard. And I think that that's really why my class has been successful is because I, I really do make a point of trying to encourage students to come to me if they have ideas about either how current topics in the course can be reframed or if they have additional information that they think is really important to include in the content. So I think that also kind of gives students the opportunity to feel like they've sort of put their stamp on the course as they leave. I feel that it allows the course to continuously get better every quarter as the students themselves change and interact with it and really help it grow. I think it's so true. I've learned something every time I've taught a human sexuality course in terms of how I might say or frame things differently. And you're so right. You know, every generation of students that come through, they're different and they're a diverse group in so many ways. And, you know, one of the other challenging things I found in teaching these courses was I had everyone from freshmen through seniors, all majors, all different sexual backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, different gender identities, sexual identities. So again, it's just a tall order when it comes to teaching it a is. course like this. <laughs> but let's talk about the sex lives of college students. So you teach these huge human sexuality courses. And as part of your work, you've surveyed your students about what their intimate lives look like. So let's dive into some of the key things that you found. Now, as a starting point, I wanted to talk about sex education and students' previous experiences with it, but I think we've kind of already covered that because it sounds like a lot of the kids who are coming in, 
just haven't really gotten much in the way of sex education. And that was true when I started teaching human sexuality. I taught my first course, I think, 16 or 17 years ago. And it was pretty clear based on the questions students were asking that their sex ed was pretty non-existent or just totally inadequate. So it's kind of unfortunate that things don't really seem to have changed all that much with respect to the kind of sex ed that students today are getting. But if students aren't getting much in the way of sex ed in their previous schooling, where are they learning about it? So is it mostly coming from porn? What are your students saying about where they're learning about sex? Well, I think, first of all, that the idea that students have not been exposed at least to any kind of sex-positive, comprehensive sex education is absolutely true. So they're coming in with a lot of holes in their knowledge. And yes, the average age that a kid first watches porn is between ages 9 and 11. And when I've surveyed my own students on that very question and asked them, you know, what and I don't even say to them, have you ever watched porn? I mean, that would immediately make me seem like I was completely out of it and not in touch with their experiences. So I even frame the question, when did you first start watching porn? And, you know, most of them are saying, echoing kind of like that between nine and 11 was maybe when they first kind of came across it by accident. But it was really sort of in those early teenage years that they started watching it on a more regular basis. And so what we see is that pornography, unfortunately, is what's informing a lot of their views around sex. And if you think about it, pornography on its own is not necessarily harmful, right? I mean, it's something that when you're contextualizing it as sexual fantasy and understanding that it can be something that sparks a sense of sexual adventure or ideas, it's not necessarily harmful. But when it's being interpreted as a literal representation of what sex and bodies look like, that's when real problems start to arise. And so what I see is that because the majority of them are what men and women and people with LGBTQI plus identities, everyone really is watching it on a you know only about 10% of my class is they don't watch it pretty much at least once a month. And so you just have to ask, you know, if you're not getting sex ed in schools and you're mostly viewing porn and viewing that as being normal, then what is that teaching you about what sex is looking like? And and what I find is that it really, it does a few things. So it impacts the types of sex that they're having, right? And it also just sets up you know, Masters and Johnson in the 1960s coined this term spectatoring, which is the idea that you're kind of sitting outside your own body, watching yourself from a third party perspective. And so a lot of my students report that during sex, they're not really able to be in the moment. They're, they're kind of, they're spectatoring essentially, because what's happening is they're sort of constantly comparing their bodies and the sex that they're having to the porn that they're watching. They have these scripts that are running through their head of what great sex is supposed to look like, right? And if you look at porn, people have perfect bodies, they have no body hair, sexual arousal is no problem, orgasm is no problem, people don't have problems having an orgasm and they don't have problems with how long they last. It's just, you know, it's always hot. It's And that can just set up a lot of insecurity. And so that's just something that I really see with my students is, the type of just sort of anxieties that they have around sex, which in in itself is ironic because 
at the same time, we live in a culture where I do think, at least in my bubble in Seattle, which is, you know, arguably more progressive maybe than other parts of the country and world, you know, people are happy to talk about sex. It's not, it's not something that really kind of brings up the same level of shame or embarrassment maybe that it once did. But there's this irony because even though there's sort of more comfort discussing it, at the same time, my sense is that students and young people in general have more fear when it actually comes to having sex. It's a little bit more of a, or less of a connected experience than maybe it was before porn became so popular. It is so interesting that young people today live in a world where there's more access to educational sex-related material than ever before. And there's also simultaneously that increased access to pornography and so forth. But despite the availability of all of this information, many of them still don't know what they need to know about sex. And many of them are looking at models of sex that just aren't all that healthy. And there are just so many opportunities to change that. Now, I did want to highlight one of the things that you mentioned in your answer where you said you frame your question as, when did you start watching porn? And I point this out because that's actually how Kinsey asked a lot of the questions when he was interviewing people about their sex lives back in the day. So he would ask things like, when did you start masturbating? Rather than asking the question, do you masturbate? Because so many people feel so much shame about answering affirmatively to that question. And so when you frame it that way, you're still giving people the opportunity to say, no, I don't watch porn or no, I don't masturbate. But you're also normalizing it to them to some degree so that you can hopefully get more honest and accurate responses without people having the shields and defenses come up based on other yes. ways that you might ask those questions. So I appreciate your thought and care there. Yes, absolutely. And you have to remember that even when you're framing a question about sex and someone's sexual experiences in that way, there's still going to be huge self-presentational biases, right? Some people just maybe because of the sexual shame that they grow up with just don't want to you know, admit to themselves or think about the fact that they watch porn more frequently than they do. So um, I, exactly, I think it's really important to ask these questions in a way that kind of tries to eliminate that shame for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So studies show that for the last 20 years or so, the average age of first intercourse is 16 or 17. Now, unfortunately, most studies haven't asked about activities other than penile vaginal intercourse, which we certainly know is not the only way to have sex. Far from it. But what the available data we have suggests is that most teens who go on to college are sexually active prior to getting there. So is that what you're seeing in your data today? How many of your students say that they've had sex before? So I have my class, you know, is covering undergraduate students from freshman year until, you know, senior year. And when I've surveyed my own students, what I've found is that 39% of them report that they've never had sex. So meaning that 61% have had sex by the time they get to college. And then when I ask them, are you currently sexually active, which, you know, arguably can be interpreted in different ways, but I only get 55% of them who say that they're currently sexually active. So my sense is that students are having sex for the first time at a later age than, than they were 10, 20 years ago. And for example, there was, you know, research that just recently came out that showed that in 2007, 
38% of young adults. So students who currently are now millennials. So it was looking at when millennials were 22, 23 years old, how many of them reported recently having had a casual sex experience? And the number was 38%. And then in 2017, the number of young adults who reported having had a casual sex experience recently dropped to 24%. So you know, what that means is if we look at that data and, you know, and I consider and take a step back and look at my class, it looks like students are having sex at a later age and they're not having as many sexual experiences as the generation that came before them. So here's the thing is, you know, I'm a parent. I have three children. I know that you can look at a statistic like that and just think, yes, right? What fantastic news. Kids are not having sex as much as they used to. Isn't that great? And, you know, here's the thing is, sure, you know, on some level, maybe it's that people are having less of the sex that they never wanted to have in the first place. And that especially as, you know, with the Me Too movement and with people feeling more empowered to say no, that they are being able to, to keep their sexual experiences to the ones that they really want. The other thing to think about is, you know, sometimes I, I use the analogy of learning to walk. And if you look at the average age that children learn to walk, right, it's not saying that all children are ready to start walking at a year. It's saying that on average, children are starting to walk maybe at around a year. And so that means that some children, right, are going to start walking before that. Some are going to start walking after that. If everyone all of a sudden, you know, reported that the average age of walking had increased to 14 months, everyone would be panicked, right? Or if it had increased to two years old, everybody would be panicked, right? So when you look at sexual experiences, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that more people haven't necessarily had sex earlier. I'm not trying to encourage everyone to go have sex just for the sake of having sex. But what the data suggests is that a group of people, you know, or a large number of people for whom having sex is a developmentally appropriate milestone at age 17 for the first time, now that's all of a sudden getting pushed forward. And so you have to ask the question of why is that? Because it's likely due to other factors in our culture that most likely surround the, just the negativity, the sexual shame, the fear that people have about sex that may be influencing those decisions. And I think you bring up a lot of great points there. I mean, there are some people who are celebrating the fact that young people are having less sex because that's probably going to mean fewer unintended pregnancies, fewer STIs hopefully fewer sexual assaults, right? So on the one hand, there are positive ways to look at that, but then there's also what are the unintended side effects of delaying sexual development in this way? And is that going to make it even harder for people to navigate their sexual and intimate lives later on? I think these are unknown questions. And in terms of the cause, there are so many different potential factors. You know, you'll hear a lot in the media about how it's all due to technology and porn and smartphones. But I think, yes, you know, that plays some role, but it's a red herring. You know, we like to just blame everything on technology and media, but so many things in our culture and society have changed over the last couple of decades. One would be rising rates of depression and anxiety in adolescents and 
coinciding with that, rising rates of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and other antidepressants, which cause negative sexual side effects. So we have to look at all of the broader changes that are happening. And I'm glad you brought up me too, because I think that that's having an impact as well. One of the ways that I suspect it's changing sex for young adults is that just imagine your coming of age sexually in the time of Me Too, right? Where people are talking about sex in this very different way. And I think Me Too has started a lot of really important conversations. And I think it has had a lot of positive impacts in terms of let's talk more about sexual assault and harassment and how do we prevent these things. But I think it's also just made sex more generally pretty fraught. And I think one of the big things that has shifted is that previously, sex and negative reputational concerns stemming from that have been something that have primarily affected women, where women were concerned about if I become sexually active, have casual sex, have partners, multiple partners, I'm going to be judged or shamed for it. And reputational concerns, the negative ones, weren't really so much of a concern for men. But now in the time of Me Too, I think you have a lot of guys who for the first time are really worried about what are the reputational impacts of me just even initiating sexual activity or flirting with somebody? Because if you flirt with someone and that is unwanted, it might get labeled as harassing or some other type of negative behavior. You might get called out for it on social media. And so I think a lot of young men are just kind of scared of sex. They don't know how to navigate it because there are all of these concerns about what is the right way to do it. And when we're not giving people any sex ed or teaching them how to communicate, I think it's just making it a lot harder for them to really engage with sex in any way. So just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I think you really just hit the nail on the head, Justin, because the number of men in my class, cis hetero men who have said to me, you know, I don't know how to approach someone who I'm interested in because to just come up to them and say something to them or, you know, to appear in any way like I'm hitting on them, I run the risk of them thinking I'm creepy, right? It's just going to seem like it's I'm coming on and then it's not wanted. And, you know, exactly. I think in the era of Me Too, it's really invited that, right? Well, the irony is that the types of sex that they're having, it just, it's, it's much more aggressive sex than what we've had in the past, right? So for example, there's been a lot of research lately on choking. In fact, I think the Archives of Sexual Behavior recently published a study saying that 26.5% of women, 6% of men, 22% of transgender and non-binary participants reported having been choked during their more recent sexual event, and that 5% of women, 24% of men, and 25% of transgender and non-binary participants reported that they had been the ones choking their partners. So, you know, it's sort of this interesting paradox, because on the one hand, I think people, again, feel that in terms of navigating these sexual experiences and navigating courtships, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of, you know, just sort of apprehension. But the actual sex they're having, I think, again, because of pornography, is mimicking kind of these sexual scripts that are, you know, not necessarily, you know, reflective of that same kind of thinking. Now, you know, that poses an interesting question, though, for, I think, sex educators is, 
how does this impact when you're talking about sex and sexual experiences? What, what do you do about the fact that a lot of students are having this type of aggressive sex? And I really feel that the role of sex education is to impart knowledge and to empower with knowledge and to try to eliminate shame and stigma. And to come in and say, try to say, why are you choking each other? That's so dangerous. And try to convince them that they should be doing otherwise. It's, you know, I think that that's a little bit misguided. I think that, you know, as a sex educator, I kind of decided at a certain point that instead of trying to convince them that they shouldn't choke and trying to say, look at all these examples where people got hurt, I say, well, if you're going to choke, here's how to, what you need to know. There needs to be consent throughout the whole experience. You need to be talking about how you know much pressure, how you're going to do it. All these things need to be decided up front. You have to make sure that you have a way of checking in to make sure the other person hasn't become unconscious. You know, sometimes, you know, I joke to my friends that I almost feel a little bit like when we had those drug programs for a while, where instead of trying to convince people not to use intravenous drugs that you just handed out clean needles. Sometimes I do wonder if I'm a little bit like that. But the reality is that I think we all as a society had the same reaction when everyone was doing, you know, having oral sex. It was sort of this big deal. And then after oral sex, it was anal sex with all of these heterosexual couples who were having anal sex, which has now become completely normalized and pop, very popular. And so now it's choking. And that is something that's sort of funny that I've seen just because I've been teaching the course now for about 10 years is just how these different types of sexual behaviors come in and out of I don't want to say in and out of vogue. It's not that they're fashionable, but they are things that people are just sort of interested in trying, right? And that just represent what is at the heart of their sense of their eroticism at that time. So it's sort of a mixed bag. And to say that apprehension, in other words, is the defining trait of their sexual experiences is really, it's so true in some regards. And then when you look at their behavior, in other types of situations, it's kind of the opposite. So it's really interesting. I think when it comes to these activities that you've been talking about, you know, oral sex, then anal sex and choking, I think a lot of it can be explained through the lens of what is taboo is often most appealing, right? So it goes yeah. back to the erotic equation that Jack Moran proposed where your attraction plus obstacles equals excitement. And so once an activity becomes so normalized, it kind of loses that taboo element to it. And so there's something new that people are going to kind of gravitate toward. And I think when you're talking about something like choking, I think in recent years, power play just in general has become a big yeah. taboo, you know, when there are power differentials and other things like that. And so I think in some ways, it might be people playing with that taboo or flirting with it in some way. It could also be influenced by porn. It's probably multifactorial. You know, as with anything sexually related, there's usually never just one cause or one same reason why everyone is drawn to it. But a question I have about choking that I don't think has really been addressed in the research is when people say that they're engaging in this behavior, that they've been choked or that they've choked a partner, are they talking about symbolic choking where there's just a hand or hands placed around the neck area, but there's no pressure, there's no restriction of airflow? Or are they talking about actual choking where there is pressure, there is restriction of air? And I think that 
This is an important distinction to make anytime we talk about BDSM activities because they run a spectrum. And many people have engaged in BDSM before, but for a lot of them, it's just very symbolic power play or symbolic mixing of pleasure with pain, like, for example, light or very mild spankings. And I think we have this tendency to sort of conflate all of these things together, but the risk profile is going to be very different, you know, if you're talking about something that is more symbolic versus something that is more intense. So I think this issue of choking in young adults happening during sex is an important one for us to pay attention to, but I think we need to ask more in-depth questions to really understand how are they actually practicing it, because that's going to inform what they really need to know in terms of safety and other sorts of things like that. Yes, absolutely. And it's funny that you bring up kink and BDSM because that's a real major thing that I talk about in my class and that my students are interested in, which is this idea that kink really is a spectrum, right? That all of us, you know, exist at some, you know, somewhere along. And it's really about sort of this excitement of knowing where your boundaries are, right? It's what is that obstacle and how hard can you push against that obstacle? And there's, you know, Esther Perel, who I adore, has this amazing quote in one of her TED Talks where she talks about how sometimes the things that we sexually fantasize about or that kind of form our eroticism are the exact things that we protest against during the day. And I think that that's really true. And I think that within sort of this element of power play and the giving, the receiving, the, you know, dominating, submitting, you know, withholding, giving, all of these things are at the core of eroticism. And even if you think of yourself as a person that would never try kink or that's not interested in BDSM in any kind of way, shape, or form, I think you and I would agree, we can assure you there is some place within your brain that does get excited about that idea of pushing a boundary or understanding what that what that limit is. Because that not that kind of at the basis of you know who we are as human beings right we're driven kind of by two things a desire for safety and predictability and control versus a desire for novelty and adventure and excitement and you know there's a, so so many social psychological theories that are kind of looking at that balance between those two needs and those two motivations and so it makes sense that our sexual desires would also reflect that kind of balance absolutely now Something that you see in your research, we see it in a lot of the research more broadly, is that college students today seem to be less sexually active than generations past. And when you further survey students about what it is that they want, many of them will say that they don't really want hookups and they are kind of turned off by college hookup culture. And in fact, in your own work, you find that most students say that they want romantic relationships, but they seem to have a really hard time navigating the dating scene and getting what they want. And they say the dating scene is horrible. So students seem to be having a hard time navigating sex, but they're also having a really hard time just navigating romantic relationships and dating more generally. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts as to why that is. I mean, I know I have one thought that I'll just share and then I'll let you kind of weigh in on it. But I think a lot of young adults are afraid of rejection and they put so much value and emphasis on relationships. 
because I think in part as a society, we've sort of built up this idea of what a relationship should be. And it's so important. There are so many things tied up in that. And so you have so many young adults who won't even say that they're dating someone, right? They're talking to someone. You know, we have a whole new language for how we discuss relationships, especially how young adults discuss it. And I think at the core of that, I think there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and they don't want to label it as something until they're sure that it's the right relationship for them or until they know where it's going to go or until they know what it is that they really want. And so it seems like there are just more and more stages in that sort of process that is there. So I think it's that combination of just a lot of anxiety and apprehension again, but also coupled with this cultural ideal of what relationships should be just ever expanding and so much more importance being placed on your partner being your one in everything and being perfect in every way. So curious if you have any thoughts on that or just more generally, why are they having a hard time with dating too? So first of all, I poll my students anonymously in you know, to, to get qualitative data as well. And one of the questions I always ask is, how would you describe the dating scene at the University of Washington? And the most popular common answer I get by far is non-existent. That's how they describe the dating scene. Followed by awful, hookups only, only hookup culture, and then you know, a lot of similar answers are along that theme. Now, I've wondered, is this something that's just unique to my class, right? So Pepper Schwartz is another researcher who does a lot of, you know, sex research in the sociology department. So I reached out to her and her grad students, and they asked the same question and get the exact same response. So you are right. <laughs> They're having a really hard time with navigating relationships. And you know, I want to talk about rejection. I think that that's spot on, but I also want to first touch upon what you said in terms of them really kind of having this idealized image of what a relationship looks like and what it's what it's supposed to feel like. And it reminds me a lot of some of the work that Eli Finkel has done on marriage, right? And he's talked about how you know, when we looked at relationships hundreds of years ago, they were a means of survival, right? I mean, it was a contract where you had someone who was, you know, you, you needed to ensure property rights and family lineage and have produced kids to help out on the farm. You weren't looking for your soulmate, right? And then, then we progressed to a point where, you know, you have this, sort of the 1950s leave it to beaver and it gets relationships are a bit more intimate then. It might be that the person is, you know, there's a, a level of friendship and closeness. But I feel like today, and, you know, this is what he talks about in his book, The All or Nothing Marriage. And he has this a great metaphor with sort of comparing it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're sort of all looking for these relationships that are right at that tippy top of the pyramid, right? We, and this is what I find with my own students when I pull them. They want a relationship where the person is their soulmate, where it's their intellectual equal, where it's someone who is going to have a great job someday, who is physically attractive, who is sexually skilled, who is socially somebody who can, you know, make them feel confident. That's a lot of demands to expect from one person, right? I mean, that's putting a lot of pressure. And I almost wonder, back to your point about this added level of rejection sensitivity, if by having this ideal of what this perfect partner looks like, it's almost 
this way of, well, I'm not going to actually put myself out there until that comes along. And so you just have to ask the question, and we don't know this, but is it kind of its own form of emotional avoidance, one that's meant to protect the self against those feelings of insecurity that can come from that internal in rejection sensitivity. And then I think the problem, right, and where that rejection sensitivity comes from, again, there can be so many different reasons, right? I mean, people love to blame parents. So <laughs> I, I, I have no idea, I, you know, if it has to do with, you know, I know with millennials, people used to joke that that they grew up during the self-esteem revolution when everyone thought that the best thing you could do for your kid was to tell them how amazing they were all the time. I thought that while by the time we got to Gen Z that some of that had been corrected, but maybe not. So when you look at it from that perspective, maybe it's that they're so terrified of not being told how amazing they are because they've never had to face it, that it's something that they just emotionally aren't skilled enough to kind of, they don't have the emotional skills to really deal with that kind of rejection, which to them feels like a massive failure. And then I think the other thing that you have to layer in here is to just think about how they're communicating, right? So yes, they have this emotional avoidance. It's, you know, I've heard it referred to as the tyranny of chill, where it's the, you know, everyone's competing in the blase Olympics. It's a, a game, a competition of who cares less. And, you know, what, what happens is that you then layer in technology and how people are communicating these days. And if you think about, the ambiguity that existed when, you know, at least people of my generation and, you know, I, I don't know how old you are, Justin, I'm sure you turned 20 yesterday, but maybe when you were younger, you know, it was the phone was, you know, its own source of ambiguity. And oh my gosh, will he, she, will he call? Will she call? Right. There was the anxiety related to that, but now it's, oh my gosh, they liked my social media post. Wait, do you think they, but what does that mean? How do I interpret that? Wait, they liked my story. I'm going to post this and see how they interact. Oh, they DM'd me. What does that mean? Well, you, they read my DM, but they never responded. What does that mean? Then they disappear for a couple of months and they start messaging you again. It's, it's, you know, technology has made communicating, yes, a million times easier, but it's also made it really hard to interpret what people are trying to say, what their intentions are. It allows there to be kind of this blank canvas that you can just sort of project onto and sort of make up any kind of a story that you want about what that person's like and what their intentions are and you know whether they mean to reject you or whether they're really just as busy as they say they are and it, i think it can get, just cause a lot of confusion and so much anxiety and just a real fear of putting yourself out there because who wants to get involved with that right the blase olympics does not sound like a lot of fun so <laughs> I I think that's a super insightful answer. There's a lot that's in there. And don't forget, you know, what does it mean if they do a deep like and they go and like something yes. that's way back in my timeline? What does that mean? I think you're so right that there's so much more ambiguity in a lot of these technological interactions that we have. And it's hard to know what to make of them unless you have a lot of experience with this thing. And I think part of it is just that if you don't have a lot of experience, you don't really know what it means. And also, if you're not checking in 
in with the other person to ask them. You're just creating your own story, your own narrative for it. So I think, yeah, all of those things are important factors. And there's one other thing I wanted to mention that I think is really important here, which is that we also have these young adults growing up at a time when they have more options than ever for who they might get romantically or sexually involved with because we have this world of online dating, right? So you have that paradox of choice as well. And people, I think, are often questioning, well, is this relationship good enough or should I keep looking for the next one? And when do I stop looking and really give something a try? And so that's a whole other layer of complexity to add to all of this. And I know we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you about sex, relationships, and college students, which is for any students who might be listening, what is your biggest piece of sex and or relationship advice that you'd like to share with them? I would like to share with them that when it comes to sex, you should never feel ashamed of the type of sexual experiences that you're looking for. And I think that And this is backed by research that shows that people's emotional outcomes to their sexual experiences largely depend on their motivation. And if you can have clarity around your motivation, that's going to help you to have the shape and and choose and select the best types of sexual experiences and relationships that you want. So in other words, if what you're looking for is a night of sexual adventure and fun and a hookup, there's no reason that that can't lead to a gratifying, fun experience. But if you're hooking up because you feel pressured by friends or because you're trying to convince yourself that somebody has a crush on you or likes you or try to take something to the next level or because it feels like everybody else is doing it, we know from a lot of research that that's more likely to lead you to having a negative experience with it. And so it's really about you know, understanding what it is that you're looking for. And then I think the second piece of that just really comes down to a level of kindness and respect, right? I think that we, if you understand that your goal is to go and have a fun sexual experience for a night, make sure that the person you're enjoying with that with is on the same page and is also looking for that because otherwise you're going to end up in a situation where you could really hurt someone, right? And and I'm not saying that I think people intentionally enter into these situations where they want to hurt anyone, but it takes, I think that we need to normalize having a certain level of compassion and thought for our sexual and relationship partners that takes into account that they may be looking for or interpreting the situation differently than we are. And it's up to us to be clear about what we want and making that clear to them. And I, you know, just to draw this back to what the, you know, what you said about online dating, which is such an important thing to to consider here. It's the same for online dating, right? I think that, you know, we know that people go out, there's a ton of options. We know that the more options you're presented with, right, it's sort of the tyranny of choice, the less attractive any of those options look to you. But again, if you're going on to, inter, you know, uh, online dating and you're clear about looking for someone who you can have a real sexual or relationship with, that's fantastic. Be clear about that, right? But if you're going on and looking for, you know, an experience where you're just, you know, looking to hook up or, you know, have something that's not serious, be clear about that too. I just think that the more clarity and communication we can have in general, the better off 
we're all going to be. And hopefully with that communication and transparency and honesty, we can start to maybe mitigate some of the factors perhaps that are lending to the extreme level of anxiety that people are, are currently feeling around sex and relationships. I love all of that. And I think when it comes to knowing what it is that you want, that is so important. And it's okay to be clear about that online. And if somebody else wants something different, they're not rejecting you. It's just not a match. And I think that that's a really good way to think about it, right? So you can potentially weed out some options this way, narrow the choices, make your job a little bit easier, make it easier for everybody if we all go in knowing a little bit more about what it is that we actually want right now. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Nicole. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and follow you on social media? Yes, absolutely. So if you want to read more of my work and follow me on my work, go to my website at NicoleTheSexProfessor.com. And yeah, you can also follow me on Instagram, again, at Nicole underscore the sex professor. Well, great. And thank you so much for sharing your time, your expertise. It's been a lot of fun to chat with you. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.